1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: There are a multitude of species that will be gone in the next 20 years if we're not paying a little closer attention to it. The Recovering America's Wildlife Act is meant to allow the funding to happen to preserve those species and keep them alive and off the endangered species list those funds that would be appropriated from that act are gonna go directly to the states. They're gonna be in your backyard. The idea is to keep wildlife off the endangered species list.
3: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history, and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passion. We are NWF Outdoors. Howdy, everybody. This is Aaron Kendall, and you are here at the NWF Outdoors podcast, and I have my co-host, Bill Cooksey, today. How's it going, buddy? Going well, going well. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm better because you and I got to actually spend some time together Last week, we were in, in Tennessee and in Arkansas doing some filming about hunters and anglers and the way they perceive climate change, and we got a little time in a duck blind, a little time on a bass boat. We unfortunately also witnessed or, or saw the aftermath of some incredible tornadoes. It was really interesting that we were there for, for climate issues, and we heard about a tornado that was on the ground for 200 and some miles, one of the longest times a tornado had spent on the ground and i don't know you you knew bill how long that had been Uh, but really incredible sight yeah and they're they're still revising all of that for the record and uh, i'm
0: at real foot right now where we went and saw so much of that damage and it just still
3: looks awful it really does yeah near that area we saw uh you know four or five foot diameter trees that were completely uprooted you know, rubs in trees, unbelievable stuff. So anyway, our hearts go out to those folks. And and that's also a duck hunting Mecca. A lot of folks, we did see uh, outfitters getting on the lake, which we were happy uh, to see that they were still making their living in the short time that they get to, uh, but uh, just brings it home. But we should jump over and introduce our guest. Uh, Today we have Lisa Ballard with us. How's it going, Lisa?
2: I'm good, Aaron. Glad to be here.
3: Well, thanks for coming. Uh, you know, we've thought it would be a good a good idea to get you on for a bit. Um, I've heard of you. And then uh, Mandela Van Eden, our communications person for outdoors here, met you at the Outdoor Writers Association Conference uh, in in Vermont, right? Vermont. Was it Vermont or New Hampshire? I think it was Vermont. Yeah, yeah
2: we were in Vermont. J Peak, Vermont.
3: Yeah. And then she connected us up. And uh, so I'm glad we get to have you. And I'm going to tell folks just a little bit about you and then Lisa, if you don't know yet, if you haven't heard many of our other podcasts, I'm sure you have, we always talk a little bit about uh, what we've been doing outside lately. Uh, just a quick little blurb, because it is the NWF Outdoors podcast, so we like to hear outdoor stories. So first I'll tell folks about Lisa. She's just a consummate outdoors woman. She's spent her whole life outside, you know, from skiing and paddling and fishing and hiking and camping, and she's a, a pretty proficient and even a I don't know, Lisa, you'll have to fill me in. I know you've won a couple of uh, sporting clays type of championships uh, with the shotgun, big, huge upland hunter. And then about 12 years ago, she moved to Montana and, and took up big game hunting as well. But she's a just a, an outdoor communicator of all stripes. She's been in multiple magazines. She's written multiple books. She's done a lot of film. She's won Emmy Awards. Basically, if it's an outdoor thing, she's covered it somehow in the media, and not to mention, she's also a professional skier. So what a, what a life in the outdoors, and we're happy to have you. Uh, so we'll start with you, Lisa, before we jump into some questions and some things we want to talk to you about. What have you been up to outside?
2: Well, most recently skiing, actually, because it's winter here in Montana, where I live, and um, the snow has been falling, and uh, we just wrapped up big game season and uh, did a little bird hunting. And it's been just a, a really great fall kind of um, for me, everything outdoors, like you were saying, is kind of in my wheelhouse. And so it just depends on the season. And so I'm right on the cusp right now, of switching over to snow sports.
3: Excellent. I feel the same way. It's, it's that transition time. What about you, Bill, since we saw one another? Since we saw one
0: another, uh, pretty much doing the same stuff in the same sort of temperatures. I mean, Friday it was seventy degrees again here. Um, this morning it was twenty-five, which was a little more seasonal. But by Christmas Day, we'll be back up in uh, back up to about seventy, and that's just crazy. But duck hunting, trying to get a few here and there, and it's it's kind of miserable, swatting mosquitoes.
3: Wow. Yeah. And Lisa, just to fill you in a little while, when we were with Bill last week, uh, you know, what he's referring to there is Tennessee, Arkansas. Some of the places we were are really seeing some unseasonably warm temperatures. Ducks aren't showing up the same way. There's not a lot of water to be moved around. So it's been a, been a pretty rough start to the duck season for, for folks in that neck of the woods. And for guys like Bill, who live and breathe that stuff and, and can't wait for that. It's, it's real tough. So that's what, that's what he's referring to.
2: I'm
3: thinking of moving west and in the ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. So we went, we went to the Eastern Montana to the prairie potholes and, uh, they were looking a little dry this year And this, we, we did shoot some teal and, um, had some good luck, uh, here and there, but it wasn't anything like past years. Just because everything's so dry, and the the just the reservoirs, the potholes are at half their um, depth that they usually are, and sometimes much less, sometimes just dry. And I'm guessing that's impacting how the flyways are all the way south. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, and we absolutely. won't make this have, too, much yeah, oh, climate, goodness, too much about climate, but <laughs> <laughs> we will get to that later. <laughs> When they have poor
0: recruitment, we have poor duck seasons this is how it works.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, for my part, I, I think I'm kind of like Lisa. I've been transitioning a little bit to skiing. I got a, I got a 16 year old who got his first elk. Cause our listeners know this year that we've done a little duck hunting, but now he's a skiing maniac and he's actually trying to teach me to be a better skier because he's better than I am. And, he shows me some ways to be a better skier. So we're on to that. I've only skied once this year. I've already got him going. But uh he's been up five or six times and uh, we need some more snow too. It seems like it's dry everywhere. I don't know who's getting the moisture. Maybe a uh, California with these atmospheric rivers. Uh California's getting flooded and huge snowstorms, and a lot of it's not making it around the rest of the country. So land of extremes. But uh let's jump in. Uh Lisa, I think it'd be good for us to just give you the chance to maybe just give us that big life overview. How'd you get into the outdoor media world? You know, I mean, you've done everything from mountaineering to hunting to outdoor media all over the world. You know, how does one get into that? And then how does that, you know, I think one of the things we want to talk about too, is kind of how that takes you to conservation. I think it's a natural thing, but uh, you know, maybe just start from the beginning, wherever you see fit. Cause it's a big question.
2: So, so I grew up in the Adirondacks and, um, uh, in upstate New York and my dad in particular, um, was really into, he, he was an outdoorsy guy, but more from a skiing perspective. And he's the one who got me on snow. But as I, I had a pretty long ski racing career, um, up through the international ranks, so to speak, and uh, but in order to to achieve that, you do a lot of other training because there's not snow on the ground year round, and um, and so because of that, I was always outdoors. I was always hiking, and I was paddling, and my my dad took me fishing as well. But um, but in terms of the physical fitness part of it, I was I was always outdoors doing something, um, biking or whatever it was, and um, and eventually that. Was where I was most comfortable, and uh, as life went on, I got very interested in. Um, well, I was a professional athlete that retired and got behind a mic, and in and, and in the broadcast world, skiing is a very very tiny dot, and so if I wanted to stay in it and make it a career, I had to kind of learn to cover a lot of different things, and I just ended up in outdoor programming. Um, I worked on a show for PBS that was a uh, it was called Windows to the Wild. And um, that was just really an opportunity to get outdoors and do lots and lots of different things. And at the same time, just from a family point of view, I did move to uh, New Hampshire at that and was living in New Hampshire and got in, we lived right on the Connecticut River, which is part of the Atlantic Flyway. And we duck hunt in the fall and I'd do it as part of the show or we'd go fishing in the spring in the summer as part of the show and um, did a lot of bird hunting. Actually, I can tell you a funny story about bird hunting. Um, You always like a good
3: story, fire away.
2: (laughs) The very first episode that I shot was on how to teach your bird dog how to hunt. And so I connected with this guy who is, who is training a bird dog. He's a professional bird dog trainer. And we planted a pheasant in this cut corn field, you know, and the idea was for this young dog uh, to go in and point the bird and then we shoot it. Okay. So um, that was all well and good, except that (laughs) the bird never took off. (laughs) And so, so anyway, we had to flush the bird and then I was totally Panic that I was going to miss it and shot it like when it was about 15 yards away. And so then everybody who saw the show afterwards was like, you know, Lisa, you could have let it fly a little further. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was the, the very first episode I shot for this show. And, um, after that, i became a lot more proficient and a lot more confident in my, my bird hunting skills. Um, uh, But uh, anyway, it was a it was a great start, and I learned a lot, and have been learning ever since.
0: The the game farm pheasant is a tough one to start out with. I mean, yeah, the dogs have a hard time, you have a hard time, and for that to be the first thing you bit off in television—that was uh, or in hunting on television—that's pretty wild.
2: Well, I should add though, ever since then, I have not shot any. Um, game farm birds (laughs) we shoot all on public land and and it's a lot more sporting and and it's actually kind of more my style anyway um but uh anyway so back to sort of how I got into the outdoors um it was always part lifestyle and part profession and um and then you know once I uh, really got into the broadcast side of it um The broadcast world goes in 13 or 26 show episodes and around the cracks i've always loved to write and i just started writing about some of the things i had the opportunity to do and um and then the next thing i knew i um those were just part of what i did it just filled time and that was my career um when i moved to montana about 12 years ago i Well, I I do a lot less television work now and a lot more writing and photography. And um, that was just also a matter of opportunity. And I've always been really involved and interested in anything visual artistically. And so um, when you add that to what I love about the outdoors, it was the perfect career path for me.
0: It's almost like media led you more into the outdoors than than the reverse.
2: Well, it was a little bit of a both and, you know, so I, like I mentioned, I was a professional athlete. And, um, and so that did give me the opportunity to get behind a mic. But at the same time, um, a lot of the other things that I did outdoors were just all part of my lifestyle. And so I was really lucky to make my lifestyle also my work. I have this idea that, you know, I saw a lot of people around me that were just working for their vacation time and they hated their jobs and they were miserable. And, and, um, I always said to myself, you know, if I can do it, my, you got to love what your work is. So I'm going to love my work because I'm spending an awful lot of time doing it. And, um, and I just feel really grateful and that I was able to, um, make that work, you know, so I get to do a lot of things I think for, for work that most people do just for fun, and of course, the you don't get to see the the work part of it. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of follow up. There's a lot of um, just proficiency and training and and everything else that goes into it. But um, but certainly, I just enjoy every moment that I'm outdoors.
3: So, Lisa, I, I want to hone in on one thing because you talked about your first um, you know your first television assignment with the with the pheasant, but Talk about that first moment you knew I'm going to get paid to do outdoor media. You know, was it then? Did you did you did you have a writing assignment or what was that first thing? And kind of what led you to that specific moment?
2: You know, I've never thought of it that way. I mean, certainly I got paid to do the programming I did and the writing assignments and photography. Um, I, I've never really thought of that specific moment. I mean, I do know my very first assignment that I got paid for, and it was actually a writing assignment. Um, It was for a magazine in New York City, no less, called Metro Sports. I don't think it's around anymore. And um, they asked me to write an article uh, on, um, it wasn't about anything hook and bullet. It was just about hiking in the Adirondacks, which is where I grew up. And, um, And I remember they paid me for it. And it wasn't a lot of money. It was maybe a hundred dollars. And this is, this is in about 1991. And I thought, wow, this is a really cool thing. (laughs) You know, I just got paid to do something I love to do. And um, I don't think of it that way though. I, I certainly understand that my career is outdoors and I, and I, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm, I, I could be in a really exotic place somewhere in the world. And I do, get to do assignments all over the world, or it can be in my backyard. You know, it's, um, I do a lot of writing about Montana outdoors and, you know, up in the mountains where I live in the Beartooth, just in my backyard. But I, I don't really boil it down to, I'm getting paid to do this as yeah. much. It's I, cause I love to do it. And I think of it more like, wow, I'm lucky I get paid to do this, but I, It's not like a real job where (laughs) your real job, it is my real job, but, um, it's not like somebody who reports to work in the morning, punches in, in the clock and, and then expects the paycheck at the end, you know, and I do expect to get paid obviously for the things I do professionally, but there's so much more to it. And, um, and one of the things that I find really rewarding and, and I am couching this in, in, um lest you think i'm some independently wealthy person i'm not you know i i need to go out and buy groceries and pay you know for my mortgage and do all the things that we all do but um i find that it's as long as i make enough to make ends meet and also i um am able to bring the outdoors to other people that's really the reward. Um, starting with the show I just mentioned to you, but also um, other things that I've done in the outdoors. Um, I I just get a lot of joy out of whether it's watching somebody improve their skiing when I'm coaching them, whether I'm talking about how to or where to go to, to shoot your first duck or whether it's um, a first-person experience of, you know, pronghorn hunting with my husband or my kids or things that um, just get people outdoors and bring that world to them. You know, I, I, I feel like you can't be a steward of it unless you understand and learn it. And not everybody gets to do it firsthand, but maybe if they see some of the things that I'm doing on camera or read something I've written, or a photo, even if it's just a pretty flower, a wildflower, um, or a, you know, a elk with its, you know, antlers and full velvet, that kind of thing, They maybe they'll say, oh, that's beautiful, or that's something I'm interested in, or I want to be there, and maybe there's a little bit of vicariousness through it, but they might care, so.
3: Yeah, I think I was hoping maybe I would drag it out, and I think I did a little bit, is, you know, you get new... <laughs> you get new people in, in, in journalism school, you know, the new, the new media age is different than it's ever been right. Uh, the pros, the talent, all the things you used to have to kind of build up and get aren't necessarily prerequisites anymore. You know, you just have to say the right thing and get the right audience on social media or whatnot. And you know, here, off you go. And so I, I was kind of trying to think about, you know, as a young person who loves the outdoors and used to have kind of these these big icons that they would look to and, and certain like publications, you know, like Field and Stream, when when certain people were young, if you hunted and fished, you just wanted to read Field and Stream and you could only get it once in paper, you know, in in the actual magazine. And now there's so many more things. I'm trying to kind of think if I were a young person and I wanted to get into that, how does one become... Elisa Ballard these days? How does one kind of get into that world? You know, that's, that's a daunting question now more than it's ever been.
2: So I think it was, it's always been a daunting question, you know, so when I was getting started, that was the same, same thing. It just was different, different doorways, so to speak. Um, you know, so I didn't have any formal training in terms of communications, you know, writing, photography, um, Television broadcast production. Um, I picked that all up as I went, um, being with good mentors and being very critical of my own work. Certainly, you can start down the road through education. You know, you can go to journalism school, or you can be uh, take environmental science, or you can become a biologist. Or you know, those are all courses that I took at different po- points in my educational background. But um, but I think ultimately you have to learn your your trade so to speak and there's different ways to get to do that Um, there's two pieces to it certainly regardless of your platform you either have to learn how to speak well record well um, or write well and it probably all of the above regardless of the medium and you certainly have to um, know your outdoor skills so a lot of people who get into outdoor media are really good at something in the outdoors. Um, I've got a really broad-based background but you could be just really good at say big game hunting um, or you can be really good at fly fishing or whatever it is and there's going to be outlets for you um, that way but you need both. You need both the communication pieces of it and you need the outdoor skills and uh, I think some people get pretty good at both and, and they they can't, they won't survive at it. Uh, I think the people that really survive are those that, that get, that have really good skills in both ways, you know, both your communication skills and your outdoor skills.
0: Yeah. When, when Aaron was sending me some links and then I started digging around, you've done so many different things and we've touched on that, but, but one that hit me uh, was your shooting, your competitive shooting and sporting clays. What led you to that? I mean, Competition versus going hunting, fishing, or of course in skiing, you were competitive, obviously. But
2: so my my shooting background, this is really classic. Okay, so um, my um, my first husband was really into shotgun sports, mostly um, upland bird hunting and duck hunting, and of course he really wanted me to learn how to do it and come along. So he did classic thing. He he went down in his gun cabinet and picked out his a lightest weight um, shotgun. It was a side by side 20 gauge and um, handed it to me and we went out on this field and he threw some hand targets and I took one shot and it kicked so badly. I put the gun down and went home. (laughs) And so that's it, no more. And, uh, and then I, I guess um, a a couple of friends called me up, you know, and uh, a couple of girlfriends and they were like, Hey, there's this becoming an outdoor women's event. Um, you know, it was about an hour and a half from where we lived. That the state of New Hampshire, the Fish and Game Department was putting on, and hey, you want to go? It's a they they teach you how to shoot a shotgun, and it was um, for sporting clays actually, target shooting. And so I went down with a couple of my girlfriends, and the teachers were gals, and. Um, and it was just, we had the best time. You know, they started us shooting grapefruits that weren't moving. They were just sitting on the side of a bank. I'll never forget it. And, you know, of course you can hit a grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like grapefruit. grapefruit. <laughs> and then they moved us to targets that were pretty easy, crossing shots and and, you know, we all shot a few and missed a lot and laughed a lot. And we had a great time. And then um, I just got really hooked on it, going to that Becoming an Outdoor Woman's event. And, then, um, and so then I started shooting sporting clays and got into it competitively. And it was um, for a period of time there, I basically traveled a lot going to sporting clays tournaments and that's really how i got grounded in shotgun sports because then it was a really easy transition to go from sporting clays in which the targets are coming from all different directions and and um in theory sporting clays was started as a sport to Um, basically mimic what birds do, even though I think nowadays the the target presentations have moved away from that quite a bit, you know, just to make it more challenging. But um, that made me a really good shot. I mean, I could, I I was just good at a lot of different gauges and a lot of different um, situations. And so I felt really confident when I went back to Trying to you know think about bird hunting and think about maybe doing some waterfowl hunting, which I also did long before I started um, working in outdoor television. So I um, that that getting grounded, especially in sporting glaze and targets, really really helped me. And I've actually written about that many times for different magazines. Um, if you want to get good uh, as a wing shot, you definitely should shoot some clays beforehand.
0: I, I love the way you started. I, I've learned in my own marriage, when my wife wants to learn how to do something that I do, I really try to get her to work with someone else. And uh, I, I'd love to hear more about that or, or what you have found, because I know you've taught people now and deal with that a lot uh, with other folks.
2: Yeah. So my mentors have, except for that, time when I basically did that becoming an outdoor women's event. Um, I've mostly been guys, um, you know, so I've been involved in the outdoors since the eighties, 1980s. Um, one of the reasons I've done so much outdoors is because I'm 60 years old, (laughs) you know, um, had some time to try some different things, but anyway, I, I find that, um, so I learned a lot from, um, you know through my two marriages and also through lots of friends and and the outdoor world until fairly recently was male dominated I mean might as well cut right to the chase on that and um even though I, I've got some gal you know I know some gals that do hunt um but I I've <laughs> there's some things that when I go out I make sure happens because it's a little different for girls and guys and um And I, now I'm confident enough in my own hunting that I can take care of that. But at first I didn't. So, okay. So guys, everybody listening to this, um, I'll give you my advice. If you're going to take your girlfriend, your wife, your daughter, your friend who's female out. Um, so, um, first of all, um, watch the weather and wait for a decent day. I've, especially if they've never gone before, they're just starting. Um, I've, I've hunted through everything at this point but when i was starting i it it really if it were miserable that wouldn't have been good um you know so make sure those creature comforts of being warm and dry you know and and bring bring some little treats like bring a thermos of hot coffee or tea and maybe a little chocolate (laughs) or something that's you know that you think that person might like to snack on i use whenever i go duck hunting i always have some rolls in my pocket so just because I like them and it's, um, and it's just nice when it's cold and wet and there's no birds, I have a Rolo and I feel good. Um, The other thing that I've found is watching the time. Um, Most women, not all, and this is just generalizations, can't tolerate getting up at four in the morning and being out there until 10 o'clock at night, you know, in the dark. And it doesn't matter if you're fishing or hunting or whatever it is. And I know lots and lots of guys who can just – just do that. They just go out first thing in the morning and they're happy to be out there all day long and whether there's action or not. And, um, I think that's something else that the timing, the how long you're out there is a really important consideration. So some creature comfort stuff, which is true for any hunter and the time um, that you spend out there, which is also true. It's true for new guys that are hunters as well. You know, it's not just women. Um, but maybe the chocolate is, (laughs)
0: i love it the uh, uh the time i i'll go ahead and go on record as a guy who i like a half a day i mean unless it is stellar i just soon come back about lunchtime or go out about lunchtime and make it a half day hunt or fishing trip but uh but i i get Maybe it you need some rollos,
3: bill I, that'll get you through my, i haven't I, thought about rolos in a long time forgot We forgot they had, existed we had homemade biscuits in the
0: blind this morning, and then we had uh, hamburgers for lunch in the blind. So we had that covered. Well, you know, the
2: other thing is typically for a new hunter, um, women, you they don't have a firearm, they don't have the right clothing. Um, you know, take your take your gal down to the, the your outdoor store and um, you know buy her something that's really going to fit, you know, and keep her warm so she doesn't feel like you know the Michelin Man out there, um, and then also um, think about what you hand her for a firearm. Um, This is more true for as much really for shotgunning, but also for any kind of rifle shooting. Um, You know, you need enough firepower to get the the job done, so to speak. But, um, you know, sometimes I think people make a mistake of handing a gal the lightest gun, but then there's nothing to actually absorb the recoil. And so Um, and certainly with a shot with shotguns as well you've got to look at the load and if the load is really heavy because that's what you like to shoot mm, reconsider for for a gal because we don't have the body mass most of the time to absorb that recoil or we don't have the experience to do it you know the truth of the matter is when you pull the trigger you're concentrating so much on the target you know the animal that you or the bird you don't really feel it but you feel it afterwards if you don't um, you know, have the right recoil. So anyway, that's, those are the things that I really advise people. The last thing I tell people is to watch your footwear. Um, because if you have blisters or your feet are cold or you're wet, you know, you don't have Gore-Tex boots, whatever it is, depending on where you're hunting, that's, that will make you as miserable as, um, your, your body could be totally comfortable, but if your feet are miserable, um, that's not so good. So so those are the, those are the main things. And it's not so specific to women, but it's something that when you're taking a gal out, she cares about.
3: Well, this is also a perfect time that we have to throw in a little, you know, shameless plug for Artemis. So Artemis is for folks who have been living under a rock and don't know what Artemis is. It is uh, our awesome sports women's initiative. Uh, there's a podcast for Artemis too. If you folks want to hear more stories from women, uh, which we do all kinds of stuff that Lisa just touched on. We talk about right fitting your gear, whether it be your, your outerwear or your shotgun or your rifle. Uh, We do things led by women that are, uh, you know, instructive in these kinds of things Lisa's talking about. So if you're a gal out there listening and you're, you're grappling with some of the things Lisa just mentioned, then check out Artemis.nwf.org and you'll be able to find some cool resources and, And hear hear from women that are out there doing these things and can help you learn. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
0: Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions
3: in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast.
2: Hey everyone, this is Marcia Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation, so head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. Oh.
3: You know one one of the things I I wanted to to talk about maybe is like your evolution in the outdoor world in your career as a woman kind of what you've seen was it was it was there roadblocks because of being a woman in the beginning and and has that have you kind of transcended that like what do you see like the evolution of how things were when you got started compared to how they are now for women in the outdoor you know particularly in the outdoor media space I know there's several women that I look to that I rely on that are out there writing and, and producing media now that are, are some of the best and, and are just as good as it gets. Some, some that you probably know, Christine Peterson, one come is one that comes to mind. She's out West here. And I know your time with OWAA, you would know, uh, Christine, mm-hmm. but you know, she's one of the best. And I look to her writing when she puts something out, I go find it, you know, so kind of walk through that and, and what it was like in the beginning compared to now, if you would.
2: Well, so when I, first started to do a lot in the outdoor media world and in the outdoors in general cuz it was sort of the same um we there was no women specific clothing forget that that just didn't happen you know i <clears throat> actually my bird vest was a boys extra large i think and um there's that that's improved a lot i mean there, it's we don't have quite the variety that guys have still but there's a lot of women specific apparel that's technically correct you know when you go outdoors and um, I kind of think of your clothing as much as gear because it keeps you warm and dry and comfortable as your as your firearm or your ammo or your backpack or any of the other gear that you might have so um, um, so that's come a long way for sure Um, just just what's available to us uh, you know to get outdoors for our gear Um, There was no women really writing much about the outdoors when I started. And there was certainly nobody hosting television programming, really. It was, uh, that was really a big step for me to do that. And um, which is probably why I was so nervous on that first show, shooting that, that poor little (laughs) pheasant. But I, um, I just, I, I feel that has changed dramatically over the years and One of the things that's nice about it is it's um, a lot more women are now respected for their, their skills and their knowledge in the outdoors versus just being kind of on a guy's arm or being, um, you know, a really pretty woman to look at. So let's put her outdoors and, and see if she can shoot a deer, you know, kind of thing. So I, I think the attitudes have changed. It's really refreshing for me to hear what you said, Aaron, about, you know, wanting to read what Christine writes. And, um, uh, she's a good friend of mine, by the way. And, uh, we, uh, I agree with you. I think she, she's an incredible outdoors woman and, and, um, you know, has, uh, knows what she's talking about when she writes. So I feel like that's changed a lot and, uh, it's all for the good. You know, um, there's a lot more women outdoors now too. Uh, it's, it's sort of a bright spot in terms of, um, recruiting new people to the outdoors and I, I am really encouraged by that. And I, I I feel like getting outdoors is, and, and especially when you're, you're hunting it's really hard to describe the difference than when you say you just go for a hike or you go ride your mountain bike on a trail. Um, when you're hunting, you really are part of your natural surroundings. You're in it. you You are absorbed by it rather than just looking at it, observing it because you're passing through and And it's something that I think women really connect to that emotionally. And it's, um, and it's a really good fit. It's just a matter of convincing gals to get out there and, and experience it, you know, and experience it in a really positive way. So, um, so I think there's lots more room to grow the women's side of the outdoors.
0: I'll go ahead and encourage any guy who discounts women in shooting, hunting, or anything else to go out to the Clay's range a little bit more. I, I've taught Scholastic Trap for years and years. And every year <laughs> we would have more young going. ladies come out, and they could leave a lot of guys, including me, after a year or two of, of work at it. I mean, there's no reason women can't do everything out there that men are doing, and they're doing it. So uh, the proof is in the pudding. Um, but one of the things that I, I read, and it turkeys, wild turkeys are near and dear to my heart. I mean, that's waterfowl first, turkeys are second. And, you know, earlier we touched barely on conservation and and now you've kind of moved into that field or that world. And I'm sure you've been in it a while, but I've read your article on what Recovering America's Wildlife Act means to wild turkeys. Um, So not necessarily turkey specific, but let's talk about conservation and how you got there and where you are.
2: Well, I think so we can't be outdoors unless we have conservation. <laughs> it's hand in hand. Um, the things we love about it, whether it's the habitat or the wildlife, um, it it all is based on on good conservation models. And so um, I think anybody who spends some time outdoors eventually understands that. And some people understand it very quickly. For me, it was it was very quickly. I I love. I, I love being outdoors and I love seeing the wildlife around me and I love being in the various habitats that I get to visit. And um, it's, it's a really, it's a really important piece of it. Um, so you had mentioned the, the Rawa article, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, um, which is in Congress right now. It's, uh, so the article that I gave you a sneak peek, a sneak peek at is going to be published in turkey caller which is the national wildlife federations magazine it's one of about 25 different magazines i write for now that um some are are published by um by non-government non-profit organizations like the national wild turkey federation and some are actual um state agencies their magazines like colorado outdoors or wyoming wildlife and um those types of publications, whether it's a nonprofit conservation group or a state conservation department, um, they care about the wildlife that are around us and understand the importance of it and try to get that message out. The key with Rawa is it's, um, and, and technically we're supposed to always say the whole thing, but it's hard to say recovering America's wildlife act.
3: (laughs) We hear that a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
2: So I feel like the most important thing about that act is that that those funds that would be appropriated from that act are going to go directly to the to the states. Um, They're going to be in your backyard. It doesn't matter what state you're in. Um, Every state will get a piece of that. And the idea is to, it's not specific to um, game, wild, you know, wild game that we consume. It's all wildlife. And the idea is to keep wildlife off the endangered species list. Because as soon as one species goes on that list, it impacts everybody it impacts the landowner it impacts the outdoor recreation users whether you're a hunter fisher hiker whoever's going to use that land it impacts um landowners it impacts the impacts all of us and it really kind of puts a lot of encumbrances but if we can keep something off the endangered species list um gosh then we can manage it and we can use the resource and and it's um everybody is happier to be really honest um so the idea behind RAO is to keep keep it at the state level and to allow state biologists to manage um both game and non-game um animals as they need to and that includes habitat and includes all the pieces of the um you know that keep wildlife healthy and happy so I think it's a really important act and it's and it's funding at a level that actually means something. You know a lot of our state agencies are really suffering budget-wise and are spread really thin and they they don't have the human or other resources to truly manage game and non-game species as they need to. And so this this will really help um make that happen. And like I said the bottom line is keeping species off the endangered species list. So I I know we weren't going to really dwell on climate change too much, but climate change is a really big piece of this. And if you follow it, there's there are a multitude of species that will be gone in the next 20 years if we're not paying a little closer attention to it. And so Rawa, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, is meant to allow the funding to happen to um, keep those hopefully preserve those species and keep them keep them alive and off the endangered species list
3: so well, Lisa you just you just kind of teed me up I mean I see bill laughing because he knows that I'm like kind of rearing to go on a bunch of these because a couple different things that you touched on there a the the, the the recovering America's Wildlife Act right I mean we've talked about it a little on this podcast the agencies all have what's called the state wildlife action plans and these are plans where they have investigated which species within their in their states need the most help and are kind of dwindling and teetering towards that endangered species list, like you mentioned. And so they've got a plan to to deal with this and restore habitat and so on, but they need the resources. So this is the first thing that would really finally and fully help them do that. And there's a couple different parts of that that I love too. The newest iteration takes wildlife violation money and funds the recovering wells. Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which I think is just poetic justice. It's beautiful. It takes the folks who've been doing things like poaching and and illegal trade and just different things like that and, and takes that money and puts it back into the wildlife they've harmed by doing those things. So beautiful on that note. And then second off, it has a lot to do with restoration of the habitat. And one of the things we've been really pushing, and Bill knows, he's heard me say it about 15 times this last week when we were doing these climate films is hunters and anglers have a specific unique role in that is a, we know the habitat because we see it year after year. We go there. We know when it's looking rough. We know a lot about what it needs. And if you do something like Rawa, you're getting resources to habitat and that creates resilience, meaning that when the climate impacts do happen, you have a better chance of weathering the storm and getting through it and keeping that wildlife on the ground. So this, along with some other different investments we can make in natural infrastructure, are really the kinds of things that, A, we need, but B, that more, maybe more importantly to me, because it's our community, the hunters and anglers need to get into their decision makers and be saying, hey guys, we want these investments, we want these type of projects, we know what the changes are, we know we want a future where our kids and their kids can go out and fish and hunt and do all the things we love to do. So I just had to go on a little... little diatribe there, Lisa, because you set me up so well. And, and, and Bill was laughing because he knew I was rearing to go on that one. But uh, can you talk, oops, sorry, my mic dropped. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, in Montana, for instance, where you're from, because I like to give people local examples, you know, what would that look like, like right where you are, if you have an idea about that?
2: Well, absolutely. So here, montanas we've had quite a year here. <laughs> so we've had extreme drought, extreme wildfire. Um, we've had what they call hood owl regulations on fishing. Um, we've had uh, uh, kind of big changes in terms of where animals are going and how long they're staying there. It's, um, there's a lot of change going on. And it's, um, I think if, if the Recovering America's Wildlife Act passes, it's going to do several things. It'll allow, um, so we're in the middle of putting our elk management uh, plan together, the state of Montana is. It will help with that. Um, it will help with connectivity. Um, Montana's a huge state, big, big pieces of land and um, big swaths of land. And it's not only the wildlife connectivity for migration corridors, but it it will also help um, with something simple, like creating, which is part of that, but it's something simple like creating um, crossovers for pronghorn that need to cross a road so they don't get run over or or deer or elk. Um, It'll help um, with a lot of the different habitat issues that you've described. And it'll also help connect, um, we've got a lot of, I don't know how to explain this. It's like patchworks of public and private land. And there's a lot of groups that are trying to make those more connected to give more um, public access. And uh, so some of that funding will help help not only benefit wildlife, but also benefit the recreational users that are, you know, want to see the wildlife or hunt it or otherwise enjoy it. So um, so some of it is structural and some of it is um, habitat and And some of it is actually the research that needs to go in behind it. Um, You know what? What biologists they need funding to figure out where to start on some of these projects. So that all of that is um, all those are components of this bill.
3: Thanks, and you know I think one of the things we always try to do is is say you know these are non game animals often, right? And so we try to help people go well. Why should hunters and anglers care? you know which a just beyond just beyond like uh don't just be selfish because it's the thing you want to pursue right it's we all and i and i find that so infrequently i should say too because i don't know a good hunter angler that doesn't love seeing plenty of other critters and and care about habitat and all those things when they're out in the woods they don't you know they don't go well if it's not good for elk then i don't like it at all that you know they they're happy to see good habitat they know that habitat equals opportunity for hunting and fishing but it's also just you know, when you see a healthy landscape, that's what supports all this this wildlife that we love so much. So, you kind of touched on that why hunters and anglers should care. There's there's more to it.
0: We also know that these state agencies have limited resources based on our, you know, license fees and Pittman Robertson dollars and all. So, getting them some additional help um, will go a long way towards also allowing more focus on game animals when necessary. Yeah, there's a lot of good
2: benefits. Yeah, Bill, you just touched on one of the reasons why this bill exists is, um, so because many state agencies, most state agencies are funded in large part by the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. And as the, there's, you know, been a decline in numbers um, overall over many years now. And so, uh, and, and then the needs have increased. And so you've got Two things pulling at each other, you know, less money coming in, more needs, and so the Recovering America's Wildlife Act will help fill that gap. And um, and also what you'd mentioned, Erin, was the idea of non-game species, how important they are. So if we if we identify a species, um, say it's a, a songbird that's in trouble, um, then by helping that songbird's habitat we're also helping the habitat of all the other animals that live and birds that live in that that area. So it's um it's a both and yeah I mean one of the
3: good, yeah, examples, of the good examples of that examples is of something that. similar to um like Naka, right? We've done all this good wetlands restoration and there's a bunch of songbirds that rely on wetlands that have all benefited too and you can see their trends, their recovery. I mean there's a lot of real correlated songbirds that have benefited and, and their populations have done some recovery based on NACA, right? And it's kind of the same concept in some ways. You, you fix that habitat. There's a lot of other things that are going to benefit. So I'm glad we got to talk about that. That's a huge NWF priority, Recovering America's Wildlife Act and many other sporting organizations as well. Uh, so I'm glad, and, and look for that folks. Uh, you'll see that in, in the National Wild Turkey Federation magazine coming up, that piece Lisa just mentioned, but Lisa, the the last little handful here before we leave, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about climate change, too, because we keep talking about it. A lot of the sporting community doesn't love talking about it. But, you know, I think your perspective being a skier, I know you've done some ski touring and mountaineering across the globe and seen a lot of different things. So I thought it'd be worth, you know, beyond just the sporting perspective and but including that for sure, if you'd like to talk just kind of about what you've seen and and the changes that you've observed and how maybe other places are talking about it. And, you know, a little bit of an open-ended question, but I think you, someone who spends so much time in the Alpine, right. One some of these dwindling places that, you know, whether it be glaciers or less snowpack or or things like that has a really unique perspective and, and, you know, can also bring in that sporting element as a, as a hunter and angler like you are.
2: Well, so (laughs) I've had the really great opportunity to have assignments where I've been asked to go document glacial recession in various places around the globe. Um, so I've been to the top of Kilimanjaro and photographed what now looks like landlocked icebergs when it used to be massive you know, two mile deep snowfields. Um, I've, I had the opportunity to climb up what's called the Western breach that in the 1960s was a technical ice climb on Kili Kili, And, um, now is kind of a rocky scramble. And, um, so that's one example. Um, I've been in central and South America, um, done in the, spent a lot of time in the Andes where I've had the chance to document, um, Oh, we trekked through these high mount, really high mountain passes, 14, 16,000 foot passes, um, and uh, documented how much those glaciers have receded by over 50% um, in just the last, within the last 50 years. Uh, most recently, I got to go to a place in Peru that was called the Rainbow Mountains, and um, the Rainbow Mountains didn't even exist. No one knew they were there um, 10 years ago. And uh, they were covered with snow and ice. And um, as that all melted out, these this group of whitewater rafters that were coming down the a river about 20 miles from there, they had pulled over and decided they wanted to go for a big hike one day and hiked up into this mountain range that they didn't know anything about and discovered this mountain that this range that was striated in every color literally of the rainbow. Um, You've never seen anything like it. There's only two ranges in the world that I know of that have this kind of striations. It wasn't there because it was all covered up um, 10 years ago. And it won't be there in 10 more years because as soon as it was exposed, um, the alpine grasses and the grasses started to um, grow and it'll all be covered up with grasses as it, as it warms there. It's a really interesting phenomena, a little mm. bit disturbing, to be honest. And so, yeah, I I mean, the the mid-latitude um, uh, glacial recession, like in Europe and places like Glacier National Park here in Montana, and um, we know about that, you know, and we've heard a lot about the melting ice caps and what's going on in Greenland and the ra- rising sea levels. But um, I was fortunate enough to get to look at um those uh, equatorial uh, areas and how glacial recession is affecting that and okay so what does that mean to us that's thousands and thousands of miles away so what it really means is water so yeah if you live on the coast you got too much water it's (laughs) the seas are rising Um, but if you live inland if you live at the base of kilimanjaro that's about to change dramatically because the spring runoff that they depend on isn't there. Um, Here in the Beartooth mountains and and around Montana, we really, really depend on ice pack and snow pack to melt out and create, um, you know, our, our own water, drinking water fish too. They need that water. And if the the runoff isn't there and the rain isn't there, then we won't, you know, that's going to dramatically change those habitats. And so I, I, I just, I've, I've had it so, it's so personal to me. Um, I, what I've seen around the globe and uh, what I've had the opportunity to document, and I really care about it. I mean, I want to, I want to catch trout for sure, but I also want my grandkids to be able to go out and catch a cutthroat trout up in the tooth And, uh, you know, I, I don't want it to get so warm that that, or the water gets too shallow that those fish can't exist anymore. Um, you know, and I want to be able to go hunt birds, you know, and I want my grandkids to go hunt birds. It's all, all, um, all related. So we need water and, uh, that's the bottom line with it.
3: Yeah. Water is life. That's for sure. I, I think I, I like to tell my kids cause my, my boy likes skiing so much and every time he's oh powder, snow, blah, blah. And I said, that's fish habitat mm-hmm. falling out of the sky, buddy. Pay attention to mm-hmm. that part. <laughs> Uh keeps it cool and keeps it in me. there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I need my powder days, but it's, <laughs> but it's really bigger than that, you know. And and for sure anybody out there that's a skier and loves snow sports, you know, snowboarding skiing, whatever in the winter. It's you know, even if you like to ice fish, you gotta have ice to sit on to ice fish. So um but for sure, with skiing, it's for me, it's that's very personal, too. So
3: are you it's engaged at all, Lisa, with you know, there's a lot of the skiing community is now coming along and, and talking about this, you know, protect our winters. There's a couple of different mm-hmm. organizations. Yep. You see a lot of the big ski hills that the, are, are starting to really get together on these things because they're looking at, you know, what's our season going to look like in 20 or 50 years? Are we even going to be able to have one or it's going to be very condensed? Are you engaged in any of those conversations?
2: Yeah, I have been for a long, long time, <laughs> for over 20 years. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's something that I obviously have a great interest in, and and um, I feel like there's uh, I feel like that skiers really care because they want the snow to be good, but they don't. So here's here's my personal feeling with climate change. I think people feel it's it's too big like it's just it's so big how do you prevent a polar ice cap from melting you know i can't possibly do that or have an impact and i feel like that's not true i think if everybody just kind of looked around them and looked at their world their own personal world and said what can i do differently or what can i do better to 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 help the the aggregate of all that would really help and it would also um change some of the ways that we that we do things you know just how we go about in the outdoors, you know, I, I, I don't have anything against people using, you know, ATVs to go romp around, but I go on foot just because I can, you know, and I feel that's important. So, um, you know, we can all do, do our part as we can, and I think the aggregate is what, what, adds up. And um, and we can also ask, um, you know, our politicians to to really push for um, bills that help support climate change because ultimately it's us. It's how we live and it's what we do every day that's going to change. So, and, and those di- natural disasters, you know, like the, the, the tornadoes that you just witnessed, um, the wreckage of that's the climate weirding <laughs> piece of it. You know, we all are subjected to, I mean, we had a hundred mile an hour winds here in Red Lodge two weeks ago, hundred mile an hour winds. I mean, it's windy here, but that's, that's some serious wind, you know, it doesn't happen. So
3: yeah, I think, you know, if, if I could take away one thing that we heard and we always continue to hear when we're doing climate work is this things are weird. Things are different. They're just mm-hmm. odd. There's just things we haven't seen. And, you know, maybe and a lot of people are loathe to say it's climate change because, you know, it's just kind of hard to say, is this that or what? But when you keep hearing historic event,
2: record, historic winds, historic
3: floods, 500 year flood every five years, uh, mm-hmm. crazy tornadoes, you have to start kind of going the trends are pointing to this, you know, folks. And, and we're certainly seeing it and talking to lots of, you know, really credible people who know what's going on in the outdoors and see it day after day. And, you know, that's, that's really what we've tried to do is bring those stories to light because I think, like you said, the aggregate of all of those things paints a pretty interesting story and a story that's kind of hard to deny and one that I think calls for action. Um, And I think our communities that are used to doing restoration projects. You know, we talked about NACA. We know about stream restoration. We know about forest restoration. We do these things already. A lot of the species groups, a lot of the conservation groups. So let's kick them into high gear. Let's get our decision makers to understand the value and let's do more of it. And let's get our community kind of thinking that that's just what we're all obligated to do all the time because that's what's going to help us. So I appreciate you, you talking about that too. I know we're coming up on an hour I've seen Bill sitting there trying to get in, but I keep interrupting him and, and say and saying goofy stuff. So, maybe, <laughs> Bill, you want to leave us with anything good?
0: Uh, no, I mean, you, you covered it. And, I mean, y'all are Western, so I'm trying to bring a little Eastern into the conversation, you know, with some of our coastal issues and all that climate change is part of. And as you said, we can't necessarily say this tornado was climate change, but it's another record and it's another record, and it's another record. And, and sooner or later, you have to pay attention to records.
3: Um, yeah, when we left uh, when we left Mississippi, someone sent me something that said, historic wins, and it's amazing how many times you keep hearing historic. And mm-hmm. if you keep hearing historic, then it's not historic anymore. Things have changed. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to give you a chance to, to – to send us on our way. Uh, any last parting words and and thank you for coming as well.
2: Well, thank you both to you, Aaron and to you, Bill. I really enjoy doing this. I guess my parting comment would be get outdoors. Um, it's, you know, if you're not outdoors, you are just not well, it's when I get outdoors, my head clears, I'm happier, I'm healthier. And I, get to see things. You know, I understand things and observe things and boy, it's fun. So, um, yeah, get outdoors. After talking about all this heavy stuff, I'm going to have to get outdoors. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thanks Lisa. What about you, Bill? What are you going to leave us? There?
0: It's really hard to top that. I mean, I'm going duck hunting again in the morning. So how much better could it get other than some winter weather to go with it?
3: Well, yeah, I'll just second and third all of that. Meaning, you know, take this time. It's the end of the year. A lot of folks are are spending some time for holidays. This this podcast is going to run on Christmas Eve. Get with your family. Get with your friends. Go outside. Find some critters, or just be outside. Um, you know, it's a it's the it's the lowest light time of the year. You know, go out there, renew, get ready for the coming light. Be ready for all the cool things that are going to happen this spring. Uh, you know, get ready to gear up for, for another crazy year in conservation where we've got as much work to do as ever. And uh, we're going to need all of, all of your help. So thank you for all you've done this year and we will see you next year. And thank you, Lisa and Bill. Have a good one guys. We are NWF Outdoors.